Uh, good morning. Uh, I wanted to start out by saying thank you to everyone that's here. Um, honestly, it's a privilege to share uh, God's word with you this morning. Um, you will, I believe, Pastor Chris will be back next Sunday. Um, so I'll just pray for him as he is uh, preaching. I, I forget where he's at, like somewhere down south, but please be in prayer for him. Um, and then secondly, he... Uh, when he gave me a passage to preach on, he gave me the whole chapter of Luke 20. Um, there's a lot in that chapter, so I'm like, oh, this should be pretty easy. Um, so I started and I picked a parable, and I just wanted to let you know, um, it turned out to not be so easy. Uh, <laughs> it was really, really tough for me to work through this passage, and it's a heavy passage. Um, so I just want you to know that I, I come with it, I just want to... Give me grace as it is a tough passage. That's all I want to say, to be honest. It is a tough one, but I think it's a necessary one, as Jesus did uh, teach it. So let's start with uh, prayer, and we'll jump in. Dear Jesus, as this song says, thank you. Thank you for everything that you've done. Thank you for taking the wrath. Thank you for suffering for all of us. And just thank you for granting us salvation. Thank you for everyone that's here. Uh, I pray that you would fill my mouth with your words, get me out of the way. And I just pray that all of us, myself included, would just learn from your word today and grow closer to you, Jesus. At the end of the day, that's, that's all I want. I want you, and help us to want you, Lord. And help us to love you more. In your name, amen. So how many people in here have ever lost their patience? Anyone? Raise your hands. All right, the people that aren't raising their hands are liars. Um, I want to give a couple scenarios where I've lost my own patience. The first one is, uh, typically, this doesn't happen too often, but whenever I leave my house late to a meeting, whether it's a deacon meeting or something like that, I get behind one of these. Um, I'm pretty sure that there's, like, farmers. I'm not, no offense to farmers. They're just waiting on the side of the road looking for somebody in a hurry because um, they always get right in front of you. Also, I'm a dad of two boys, so when uh, either my wife or I put something on the table that looks green or like that, that's the face I usually get. They don't want to eat it, and it takes forever, I don't know what's going on there, sorry, um, to get them to eat the broccoli or the green beans or whatever it is. The third example, and this isn't just on uh, Black Friday, but I shop at Meyer Cedar Springs, and I swear the line is like that all the time. And there's like three lanes that are like three lanes open and like 27 not open. And the last example, I'm a Chick-fil-A lover, so I don't know if anyone else is out there that loves Chick-fil-A. Uh, but that's what the line looks like pretty much till the time they open till the time they close. Um, but all four of those scenarios are where I just lose my patience. I'm upset. Um, I can't handle it. And to be honest, they're all little just trivial things where we just, we get pretty mad. We just lose our patience. We can't handle it anymore. But we're going to talk about a parable that's not about trivial times where we just lose our minds. We're going to be talking about patience wearing thin, but it taking a very, very long time for an owner of a vineyard to lose his patience. We lose our patience with something little, but let's see what he does. So... Open to Luke chapter 20, 
And we're going to read verses 9 through 18 and then break that down. It's a parable of the wicked tenants. Uh, Luke 20, verse 9. And he began to tell the people this parable. A man planted a vineyard and let it out to tenants and went into another country for a long while. When the time came, he sent a servant to the tenants so that they would give him some of the fruit of the vineyard. But the tenants beat him and sent him away empty-handed. And he sent another servant, but they also beat and treated him shamefully and sent him away empty-handed. And he sent yet a third. This one also they wounded and cast out. Then the owner of the vineyard said, What shall I do? I will send my beloved son. Perhaps they will respect him. But when the tenants saw him, they said to themselves, This is the heir. Let us kill him so that the inheritance may be ours. And they threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. What then will the owner of the vineyard do to them? He will come and destroy those tenants and give those vineyards to others. When they heard this, they said, surely not. But he looked directly at them and said, what then is this that is written? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. Everyone who falls on that stone will be broken to pieces, and when it falls on anyone, it will crush him. So I'm going to build a lot of context into this so we don't just glaze over this parable of a vineyard and uh, some tenants and an owner. Um, the first part I want to do is what stage of the week are we in? Pastor Ken last week talked about Palm Sunday, so that was Jesus entering in Jerusalem actually on a Sunday. Um, and then Monday, at the end I think of uh, Luke 19, he cleanses the temple. And then on Tuesday, Wednesday, Jesus is teaching in the temple. And then you have Thursday, Lord's Supper in the evening. And then you have Jesus' uh, death on a cross on Friday. Well, this parable takes place probably in that Tuesday, Wednesday time frame when Jesus is teaching in the temple. So just keep in mind that he just entered on Sunday, and they're putting palm branches. He's entering in on a donkey. And then the next day, he cleanses the temple, uh, flips the tables over. And then you got him teaching and kind of uh, rooting out the hypocrisy of the religious leaders. But he knows when he's preaching and teaching this that in two days, he's going to be on the cross. Now, this parable starts out in the setting of a vineyard. If you look up there, that's actually a vineyard um, in Israel somewhere. Is that not gorgeous or what? I mean, that is just beautiful. So we start out with a vineyard. And why did Jesus perhaps um, use a vineyard? Well, a vineyard, often Israel was referred to as a vineyard back in Isaiah. And secondly, it's a very common practice or a common theme in Israel is just to have vineyard and grapes. The other thing is, in the temple that Jesus was preaching at, there was actually a grapevine from the front entrance all the way to the holy place of like a 100-foot-long grapevine. So this would have captured the audience, the religious leaders that he's specifically turning and talking to. It's for all of us, right? But specifically to the religious leaders. So they understand, okay, I got it, there's a vineyard. But what else do we see in verse 9? We see a couple different characters. The first one we see is it says a man, and then later in the chapter it actually says an owner. And then you also have some tenants. So let's kind of figure out, all right, what role do they play? An owner back in first century Israel they had a lot of land, so he's most likely wealthy, um, had different plots of land, and as it says in verse 9, he planted a vineyard. And then you have tenants. Tenants, to be honest, probably didn't have a dime to their name. They probably didn't have a whole lot. And I just want you to think of them as needy. They didn't have anything, and they honestly needed owners 
to have land so that they could work, have a job, have a living, provide for their families. So what happened in verse 9 that we don't necessarily see um, in today's culture, we would call it like a lease agreement. So what the owner and tenants would do, they probably didn't sign an actual lease agreement like you see up there, right? There might have been a handshake or whatever, but what the tenants and owners would have agreed upon is, all right, I need you to work my land. I just planted a vineyard, keep it safe. And all I ask is that you just give me a portion of the harvest when it comes in, when harvest time comes around. But can you take care of this for me? So they said, yep, no problem. We'll take care of your vineyard. We'll make sure you get paid what is your due. So they would have signed some form of contract. Um, but let's look at what happens after the owner's been gone for several years. We don't know how long exactly, but he was gone for a long time. Um, and we don't know exactly where he is, but let's see what happens when harvest time comes. If we look at verses 10 through 12, again, of Luke chapter 20, when the time came, he sent a servant to the tenants so that they would give him some of the fruit of the vineyard. But the tenants beat him and sent him away empty-handed. And he sent another servant. They also beat and treated him shamefully and sent him away empty-handed. And they sent a third. This one they also wounded and cast out. All right, so actually in the book of Matthew, it says he sent groups of servants in the same parable. But needless to say, he sent several, par or, uh, several servants to the tenants to collect on this harvest. The first one they beat, sent away empty-handed. Second one they treated shamefully. The third one they cast out. So it kind of ramps up. So just think about this, these tenants that had no land or a dime in their pocket, get this land from this wealthy owner, and then all they need to do is give a portion to that owner that gave them a life, essentially, and they don't want to do it. In fact, not only do they say no, they beat all the servants. So the first thing we see is just servants um, mistreated. You can click to the next one. Um, and he just, he ramps it up every single time. And what's interesting, when, when the servants are mistreated, that gives the Pharisees, like, they're drawn in because they see uh, tenants doing wrong to the servants and to the owner. And I can tell you what, Pharisees are always ready to judge. So this, I think, is drawn to them. They understand a vineyard. They understand these people are doing wrong. And these religious leaders, these Pharisees, are just like, all right, I got this. I got somebody to judge now. Let's keep listening to the story. But not only are they mistreated, there's a violation of contract. The owner and the tenants would have agreed to something, and they're just not upholding their end of the bargain. In fact, it's way worse than just not uh, upholding their end of the bargain. They're <laughs> it's unbelievable what they're doing. And the, the next thing that I'm just thinking as I see like servant after servant after servant is the owner's patience is being tested. I mean, I, I'm thinking to myself, if I get stuck behind a tractor because I left my house late and I get to a meeting late and I'm upset, He's sending servants to something that he's owned, and they're just getting beaten empty-handed, but he keeps sending them. But why? Why does he keep sending them? Because the owner is an imagery of God himself. If we were to look at 2 Chronicles 36, and I'm going to put it actually up on the screen there so we can read it together. The Lord, the God of their fathers, sent persistently to them by his messengers because he had compassion on his people and on his dwelling place. But they kept mocking the messengers of God, despising his words, scoffing at his prophets. That's why. 
So the owner of the vineyard is imagery of God, and that's what God did to Old Testament Israel. He just kept sending messenger after messenger after messenger. Why? Because he had compassion on his people, and he loved the land that he had given them. And that's what the owner is doing in Luke chapter 20. The owner's patience is being tested. But next, after verses 10 through 12, we get to verses 13 through 15. Now this is essentially the heart of the parable, of the whole parable. And this is the part that I really want to focus on. I know I, as I'm looking through this, I know I skipped a slide, so I do apologize for that. Um, but I really want us to focus on 13 through 15. That is the heart of this message and honestly the hardest part for me to work through myself. Then the owner of the vineyard said, after all these uh, servants were beat, what shall I do? I will send my beloved son. Perhaps they will respect him. But when the tenants saw him, they said to themselves, this is the heir. Let us kill him so the inheritance may be ours. And they threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. All right, is the owner absolutely just crazy? Like, why would he ever ask, what shall I do now? I mean, honestly, if I ask my kids to put on their shoes three times, I've already lost it. I've lost my cool. Like, Dad's coming in, you're getting your shoes on. This is a little bit different. He's like, uh, what should I do? I don't think it's that the owner is crazy or that he's ignorant. Like we read in Second Chronicles, he has compassion and he's persistent. He wants them to do the right thing. But they don't want to do the right thing. But still, I don't know if, about you, but the thing that I've thought about is why would he do this? And I don't know if I want to ask why would he do this, but who is the owner? What's his character like? The first thing we notice about his character is he's persistent. And I know we said that a couple times, but just think about that. When you think about the owner of this parable and then God himself, he's just persistent. And the next thing that we notice is he's very patient. We are not very patient, but the owner is very patient. And then the third thing is, it's not that he's crazy or ignorant that they're mistreating his servants. He's doing it out of love. He's very, very loving. And I'm thinking to myself, why, why does he just keep sending them? It's because the owner wants to give the tenants chance after chance after chance after chance to do what's right. Does that sound familiar? How often are we like the tenants where we don't want to do what's right often? If the stove's hot when you're three years old and you don't believe mom, you want to touch the stove because you just don't want to believe that that's the right thing to do. But the owner is offering chance after chance after chance to these tenants to do what is right. But the next part within 13 through 15, after he asks, what shall I do? He says, I will send my beloved son. What? Why would you send your son? Why on earth would you send your son? Does he think that, he says right here, maybe perhaps they will respect him. I think he kind of knows that they won't since we know that this is an imagery of God the Father, he knew what would happen to Jesus. 
but why send your son? You just, you sent all of these uh, servants, and then they just get beat. Beat and beat. But why send the son? But I think we've got to look at God's character as well. And you might see some similarities to the owner. That's intentional. God is also persistent with each and every single one of us in this room. Very persistent with us. The next thing we see is God is very, very patient. Oh my goodness, he's patient, right? The air we're breathing right now in this room and it's just exhaling, that's patience. I mean, we have done, I've done some bad things, but he is patient with me. Very, very patient. And I think the reason he send, the owner sends his son and that God sends his son is that he's loving. Often we think of God the Father is mean and cruel from the Old Testament, and then we see Jesus is really, really loving. But God the Father loved so much, he kept sending prophet after prophet after prophet, and it didn't work out. Israel kept messing up. So then he's like, I'm going to have to send my son. <laughs> do this right. He's the only one that could do it. But see it as a sign of a loving father. He's not a cruel father. He's persistent, he's patient, and he's loving. But why would God do it? Why would he do it for us? Why would the owner do this? And I think the answer resides in 2 Peter 3, verse 9, where it says, The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that anyone should perish, but that all should reach repentance. And that's what the owner wants. That's what God the Father wants from us. He is giving them an opportunity to repent, to turn away from what they're doing that they know is evil. Everyone reading the story would know that they did what was wrong. That's obvious. But he's giving an opportunity to repent and turn. That's why he's persistent. That's why he's patient. Honestly, I want Jesus to come back but there's this weird tension because when he comes back, it's done. The patience is ended. It's all done. And it's going to be a great day. But it scares me because some people are living in this patience and they just think they can keep doing that. We have to be mindful that eventually the patience will wear thin. Patience will wear thin. So let's see how the tenants respond to the sun coming. They say, this is the heir, so they know who he is. They might have not known who the servants were. We'll give them that one, right? Maybe they thought it was just some random people coming to them asking for some of the harvest. But they know who the son is. They might have thought that the owner was dead, that that's why the son is coming. But either way, they know who the son is, and they know he's the heir, and they know he deserves respect. And right after they identify who he is, their first response is, let us kill him. That was their first response. There was no hesitation on their part. They said, let us kill him, because they wanted the vineyard for themselves. But I would argue, prior to knowing Christ, our first response is always the same thing. Let us kill him. Let us kill him. I want to draw your attention to a quote that I came across when I was studying. 
specifically this part, this parable shows that sinful men are so malicious in their hatred of others, including God, that they murder God's servants and son and would naturally murder God himself if he stooped to put them in his grasp. We would. Prior to knowing Christ, that's where we are. That's where the tenets were. And it violates the two commandments of love God with all your heart, soul, strength, and mind, and love others. It violates both. But how do I know if I'm a tenant? How do we know if we're a tenant? Well, let's look at the motivation of a tenant, or a tenant's motivation to kill. How do I know if I'm just like these tenants that see the sun and they just want to kill him? The first thing that we can point to is, is the sun seen as an obstacle? That's what it was for them. If they get rid of the sun, they get the vineyard. So the sun's an, an obstacle to what they want. We all have pet sins in our lives that we want, and Jesus is getting in the way of that, or his word is getting in the way of that. You see the sin pervasive in our culture, and typically it leads to it's a form of selfishness or pride of things we want. And typically, no, I would say always, Jesus would get in the way of that and say, you don't need that, but we want it. Do you see Jesus as an obstacle in your life from what you want? Number two, the tenants do not want to submit to authority. Uh, Ken, Pastor Ken alluded to it. It's Luke 19, 14, where um, they say, the citizens hated him and sent a delegation after him, saying, we do not want this man to reign over us. We don't want anyone reigning over us. <laughs> Definitely don't want that. If I submit to someone's authority, then I have to obey them. If I submit to my own authority, I have to obey me. That's a little bit easier because then I get what I want. But we have to think about that. Are you willing to submit to the son's and father's authority to his word? They were not willing to. They want to be their own boss. And what's ironic is they didn't even own the vineyard. They're in another man's vineyard that was given to them freely, and now they're going to kill someone so they get it. And the third point, and I'm sure there's other motivations, but how do I know if I'm a tenant? This one really scares me, and it's hard for me to, like, go through. But the, they want the vineyard without the owner. And the reason it scares me is sometimes I think some of us have been guilty of, like, we want heaven, but we don't really want Jesus to be there. And I, I realize, like, no, I want Jesus and then I get heaven. Let's not separate the benefits of Christ and Christ himself. Let's look to the Son and pray, like, help me love you, Jesus. Because we get bogged down in the things that we want, the things that we see. And sometimes we don't want his word and we don't want God himself. We just want the vineyard, a happy life, without the owner distracting us at all, the owner in our life at all. And that's scary. That's very scary. But then we get to verses 15, or the second half of 15 and 16, where, the, where we answer, what is the owner going to do now that his son has been killed? And, the, and they threw him out, and, out of the vineyard and killed him. What then will the owner of the vineyard do to them? 
he will come and destroy those tenants and give the vineyard to others. When they heard this, they said, surely not. All right, so the audience did not understand anything until this point. But Jesus answers right away, what will the owner of the vineyard do? And all of us in here would probably come to the same conclusion. He will come and destroy those tenants and give it to other people. Honestly, this reminds me of an analogy. If you were to get an apartment and the landlord says you can't paint the walls, you can't have pets, and it's 500 bucks a month. And as soon as you move in, you have a bunch of pets, and you paint the walls like bright blue and green and red, and then they keep coming back for a monthly payment, and you keep saying no, you keep punching them in the face, and then the owner or landlord's son comes, and you kill him, I guarantee you're not keeping that apartment. I guarantee you that's not going to happen. Those keys are going to be given to someone else. But of course, the owner should come. At this point, his patience has worn thin, very thin. And next, if you can click it, the chief priests say, surely not. Why do they say that? Because the light bulb went off. If we went back in Matthew, it's funny, the audience actually answers it. So Jesus probably taught this parable several times. But in this one, Jesus answers because he knows they get it. And the reason they say surely not is because it emphasizes a transfer of power. Not only are they going to be destroyed, now they have to turn the keys over too. And the religious leaders like being religious leaders. They do not want to hand the keys of the kingdom over. I would argue that they didn't have it anyway, but yeah, needless to say, they did not want to hand that over. But now that Jesus has obviously captured the attention of the religious leaders, he knows he's got them focused in, he knows that, it, that he's talking about them, then this is when it gets pretty serious. We look at verse 17 of Luke 20. Now that he's got their attention, he says, but he looked directly at them. There was a, probably a, a wide array of audience, but he's definitely looking at these religious leaders. And he said, what then is this that is written? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. Now that is a very well-known uh, quote. It actually is from Psalm 118.22, where the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. What does that mean? Um, I read a, a good quote in a commentary where it actually said, it's a beautiful like, picture of Jesus Christ's rejection and actually his restoration. So when we think about the stone that the builders rejected, that could be uh, Old Testament Israel, or the religious leaders that Jesus is talking to, or even us. It shows his rejection, and then it says has become the cornerstone, Jesus' restoration when he comes back, and he is living as king. Now that's, I believe, the western eastern wall in Jerusalem, and if you just highlight that corner, that just shows, obviously, the corner of the building. Why is the cornerstone so important, especially in first century Israel? Well, first of all, if it's not square, the building's going to look a little weird, as if I tried to build it, uh, because I'm not uh, handy at all. Um, secondly, if it's not perfectly level, you're not going to be able to build it very tall. Let's be honest. I mean, it's going to tip over, for sure. So that cornerstone has to be perfect. And that's why Jesus has to be the cornerstone and not the religious leaders. He has to be the cornerstone. No one else. 
So he's further offending and challenging their authority, and they don't like it. They don't like it at all. But verse 18 is the scariest verse of all, the whole parable of Luke 20. It says, everyone who falls on that stone will be broken to pieces, and when it falls on anyone, it will crush him. It will crush him. If we were to look at Isaiah 8, 14 through 16, we are told that Jesus would become a stumbling block and a stone of offense, meaning he is the obstacle of struggle and power and control because he offends them. But this verse has always kind of boggled my mind. I never kind of knew what it meant. So I'm going to kind of pull us to an illustration, and it may sound very Dr. Seuss-esque. Apparently I'm reading too many children's books, or I'm terrible at grammar, or both. Um, so clay pot plus rock experiment. I really wanted to bring it here, but I didn't want shards going all over. Um, I'm giving you a hint, by the way. Uh, so test number one, we drop pot on rock. What happens? It breaks. Test number two, drop rock on pot. What happens? Same thing. Same thing. Everyone who falls on that stone will be broken to pieces. That means while we're living now, if we're stumbling over, and I don't want to believe in Jesus, that's not good news. You're going to be broken, trust me. And then that second half, that drop rock on pot, or when it falls on anyone, that's actually depicting judgment. Back in Daniel 2, where the stone not made with man's hands comes and fills the whole earth with a mountain. That's judgment, folks. That is judgment. And I don't like verse 18 at all. Because it tells me what happens to the tenants, but more importantly, it tells me what happens to anyone who rejects the sun. Rejecting the sun equals utter destruction. Like you may be avoiding Jesus now, you may be getting by, but while you're breathing in this very moment, just know we're not guaranteed tomorrow. And there will be a time where avoiding Jesus will be impossible. It will be impossible. Now the next quote I put up here was, is challenging for me, but I think it's good for us to read. The judgment of God is not to be taken lightly. Why? Because God is not to be taken lightly. If you will not have him now as your Savior, in the day of his grace, you will have him as your judge when you stand before his throne. Now I'm not trying to scare anyone, I'm just trying to teach what is written, right? But it's true. If you haven't accepted him, you're in his day of grace right now. And if you decide never to, you will face him as your judge. The owner's coming back, right? And what's going to happen because the son was killed and rejected by the tenants. Utter destruction. There's no way to avoid it. You will be crushed. But I never want to end on 
the judgment side of things because we do have the entire gospel. What happens if I accept the Son? What happens if I don't reject the Son? I want to put up three verses. Most likely they're familiar to you. First one is John 13, 20. And that reads, Whoever receives the one I send receives me, and whoever receives me receives the one who sent me. In the next verse, 1 Peter 2, 4 through 6. Um, I actually encourage you to write that down. It actually is talking about the cornerstone that is rejected uh, by the, or actually the stone rejected by the builders. It's a great, actually, complement uh, to the story. Uh, but whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. Whoever believes in Jesus will not be put to shame. And then most importantly, the verse that we all know, John 3, 16, but I like to add 17 because I think it gives you a little bit more context. Whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. This is a really heavy parable, I'm not going to lie. Um, but I want to give an illustration. I am a dad. I've only been a dad for five years. Um, and I love my boys. And uh, honestly, like, I'm trying to think of some examples, but when I leave, or Missy and I go and go on a date, they always want to, like, give us a hug, but they can't just give us a normal hug. They have to go to the end of the living room and then run towards me, and I have to lift them up and hug them. I don't know why they can't do a normal hug um, at that point, but you have to do that before you leave. So both of them, will, one will take a turn, and I'll throw them up in the air and just hug them, and then the next one I'll throw up in there and hug them. Um, <laughs> but nothing is warmer to my heart than hugging my boys. I guarantee you there's not. There might be, but in my opinion, it's just awesome. And when I read this story, I don't want us to get lost in the fact that this is just a man, this is just an owner of a vineyard, um, and the worship team can come up. But this is a father. He sent his son in the story. So when I look at my boys, if I were to send them out, they're only five and three, or almost three. If someone were to kill my son, you can bet your bottom dollar I'm coming. And my wrath is nothing compared to the Father's. Nothing compared to our Heavenly Father. So the only question that I have for all of us, including myself, is have you accepted, and you can't read it right there, but accepted or rejected his son? And I can't answer that for you. Let's pray.